Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, we are, I pray, so very grateful for the reminder this morning because we we do have to confess that we find ourselves pressed on every side. We find so many things that perplex us, things that afflict us, things that vex our spirits, things that cause us to become discouraged, disheartened, even sometimes to despair. And Father, the reminder, the example of Jeremiah is such an encouraging one because we see a man who you commissioned with the promise that he would prevail. That nations, his own people, rulers, the religious leaders in Israel the nation itself would oppose him, would stand against him. And yet they would not prevail. He would triumph because you had set him apart as your prophet to Israel and to the nations. And yet, that triumph saw a man who was deeply afflicted, A man who suffered all kinds of physical and emotional distress. A man who felt even abandoned and pursued by you. And yet through all of that, through all of his circumstances in which even you seemed to be arrayed against him, he held on to the truth, the promise that his God remains ever the same, and that even in his affliction, he was triumphant. Even in his imprisonment, even in the abuse, the mistreatment that he endured, he stood fast because his God was triumphal in and through him. And Father, I pray that that would be an encouragement to us. It's so easy for us to Seek an easy path. It's so easy for us in our pain and in our difficulty, in the things that afflict and even frighten us, that we would flee for some, seeking some sort of deliverance, some sort of remedy, something that will make everything be better in the way that we desire it to be. Father, help us to understand in a way that even Jeremiah could not, in a way that if he could speak to us, he would say, how much more ought you to remain steadfast, confident in the Lord? Because the God that he trusted is the God who has made us more than conquerors, through the Christ who has loved us. In him we have been given everything that pertains to life and godliness. How much more ought we to be resolute? So meet us in this time, Father, as we continue our worship, as we even consider this great burden and angst of the psalmist. I pray that you administer to each one of us. Meet us at the point of our need, Encourage us, build us up in this most holy faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been considering the uh, study in the Psalms with the Psalms being the 
songs of Israel's sonship, expressive of the life of the people of Israel with their God in the context of their covenant sonship. And we've seen that as a a part of that life of sonship, there are these challenges that Israel faced. It seems like it should always just be a triumphal thing. We even live in a time where you hear this expression, we are the king's kids. We are victorious. We are sons of the king. And there's a very profound sense in which that's true, but the way in which it's generally understood is not at all true and is, in fact, idolatrous. But Israel understood that its sonship was filled with difficulty, challenges, things that pressed them to have to hold tightly to the truth of who they were, what God had called them to, what he had even ordained would be their, their contribution to his purposes for the world. And the, the fundamental reason for that challenge was the fact that Israel's sonship stood in a context of unrealized fulfillment. God had not yet done what he had promised that he would do. And even we who would draw from the Psalms and say, okay, well, they lived in a context of of non-fulfillment, waiting for this work of God in the Messiah. We are those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We are the sharers in the triumph of God in the Messiah. But we still live lives of sonship in the context of challenge and difficulty. We saw that certainly through the book of Hebrews. But the reason is that we are sons and daughters in the context of an already but not yet fulfillment. Even now we are children of God and yet it doesn't presently appear what it shall be. And so we live out our sonship in the context of imperfection as it pertains to us personally and as it pertains to the world around us. This is Romans 8, where Paul talked about the creation subjected to futility, not of its own will, but of the will of the one who subjected it. The creation groaning under the curse, awaiting for the day when it will enter into and enjoy its own renewal through the renewal, the, the triumph of God in Christ. But Paul says that creation is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. When God's human creatures are revealed in their full consummate sonship, their full renewal, then the creation itself will enter into that renewal. But as it is now, we wait. And we groan. And so we considered how a central theme through the Psalms is this theme of lament. And we discussed what lament is and what it is not. It's not complaining and grumbling because life doesn't look the way we think it should. It's not simply some kind of sadness or moroseness and, you know, uh, kind of uh, that, that sort of... Uh, face-in-the-dust kind of discouragement. I said to you all last time, again, drawing on the Romans 8 idea, that this lament is really eschatological angst. Maybe a big term, but the idea is that our lament is our groaning and our longing in view of that which God has said he is doing and what is yet to come. That's what you see the groaning of the creation being in in Romans chapter 8. The creation is groaning, not simply in the sense of suffering, but it's like a woman in labor pains. It's waiting, it's longing for that day when it will finally enter into that which God has purposed for it. And so it is with us. Our lament is our understanding of God's purposes, what he's accomplished in Christ, who we are in Christ, 
but ultimately in the context of this already but not yet. We are longing for and living in light of and groaning within ourselves, waiting for that day when God will consummately complete what he has begun in Christ. And so in this present age, lament is at the heart of sonship. If the Psalms were the marrow of Israel's worship, and if lament is a predominant theme, I would argue perhaps the predominant theme, set alongside praise and thanksgiving in the Psalms, then lament is critically important to our worship. Not lament in the way, again, we think of it as grumbling, complaining, whining to God. Why doesn't this look this way? Why doesn't it look that way? But this eschatological angst, because at the heart of that is faith and hope. Believing God for what he has said, for what he is doing, and hoping in it, holding tightly to it. And that's why lament is worship. That's why God seeks it and embraces it as worship. And as we continue forward with these challenges to sonship, I want to build on this theme of lament with a new theme, which is this idea of imprecation. We've probably all heard the expression, the imprecatory psalms. Imprecation is is kind of a word we don't use very much, but in the generic sense, imprecation is the idea of, of cursing someone or calling, you know, speaking evil or speaking badly of someone. And in the scriptural sense, we tend to think of imprecation in terms of calling on God to curse someone or calling on God to deal with our enemies or to deal with the bad people, to deal with those uh, who, who need to be uh, you know, justly punished or destroyed. And we see this theme of imprecation throughout the Psalms. That's why there's a whole classification and different scholars, you know, bounded in with different particular psalms. But but you have this classification of psalms called the imprecatory psalms. And I would argue that just as lament is a primary theme that's woven through almost all the psalms, so also imprecation in the biblical sense is woven through the whole of the Psalter. There are some psalms that are very much focused on that idea, but it's very much a theme throughout the Psalter. Imprecation. Well, we struggle with the idea. I've had this discussion with people through the years, even as they read through the imprecatory psalms, these psalms in which the psalmist is calling upon God to arise and to punish and to judge and to destroy I've had people ask me, should we pray those prayers? Should we pray that God would rise up and destroy those who are oppressing us? Those who are afflicting us. Should we pray that God would rise up and destroy the evildoers and the unjust ones? And if so, what do we do with Jesus saying, you have heard it said, you are to... Love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you that you are to pray for those who persecute you. You are to love your enemies, that you would be sons of your father who's in heaven. So people have answered that question in the Psalms in different ways, sometimes saying, well, that was in the preparatory period and David could pray that way, but now in Christ things have changed. Or people say the Psalms are simply recording what was going on in the heart and the mind of that particular psalmist. And it doesn't mean that God necessarily approves of it. So I hope that as we consider one of the imprecatory psalms today and and we see what exactly is behind it, 
that we'll be able to begin to answer that question. And then the next time, what I'd like to do is to flesh out a little bit more of some of these practical questions and what we do with the imprecatory psalms, how we see this thing in terms of worship and how we would engage with these psalms in our own worship, in our own lives with God. So the first thing then, as before we get into one of these psalms, is recognizing that imprecation is a fundamental aspect of lament, biblically speaking. It's a fundamental aspect of lament. It's not simply, and it isn't really, I shouldn't even say simply, it's not calling down God's wrath or asking God to act, you know, in in a vengeful way against our enemies out of personal concern. Imprecation is an aspect of this eschatological angst that gives voice to our faith and our hope. It's an aspect of this angst, this groaning, this longing, this kind of godly dissatisfaction or unsettledness. Imprecation is fundamental to biblical lament, and so I'm going to argue imprecation as a key theme even in the Psalms is fundamental to our worship. See, when people ask the question, should we pray the imprecatory psalm? Should we pray for God to rise up against our enemies? What the scripture would say is rightly understood. Imprecation is a key aspect, a fundamental aspect of our worship. If it's a fundamental aspect of lament and lament is at the heart of our worship, then imprecation is also a part of our worship. So it's not simply do we pray imprecatory psalms or pray in that way, but actually imprecation is fundamental to our worship. And that may seem like a startling thing, but hopefully we will see how that's the case as we move on. And I, again, my basic contention is that the reason we wrestle with this whole idea of imprecation or the imprecatory psalms is that we don't understand these basic principles of what it is and how it stands in relation to lament and the already but not yet the circumstance in which we find ourselves. While there are all sorts of psalms that we could point to, I want to consider specifically Psalm 10 today. It's a psalm uh, that is a, a, a personal psalm of imprecation, but, but the psalmist is, in a sense, speaking on behalf of all those who are suffering this sort of in, injustice and oppression and affliction at the hand of evildoers. So it's his own uh, pleading with God, it's his own imprecation, but as he represents a whole group of people. And just as we saw that in the Psalms of Lament, some of them are personal, some of them are communal, so it is also with the imprecatory Psalms. So let's go ahead and read Psalm 10, and then in the way I've been handling these, I'll just give some general um, observations and then some more specific consideration of, of the text itself and then sum up some conclusions. Psalm 10, the psalmist says, Why do you stand far off, O Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel? Why you are God, the God of Israel? Why do you stand so far off? Why do you even go so far as to hide yourself in times of trouble, in our distress? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. The greedy man curses, spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are there, are, there is no God. The God of Israel is a sham. His ways prosper at all times. Thy, you, but your judgments are on high, out of his sight. His ways, meaning the evildoer, he prospers in all of his ways at all times. And your judgments, O Lord, are way up in heaven. They're out of sight. They're out of his sight. And as for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He derides them. He says to himself, I shall not be moved. 
I'll not be affected or impacted. Throughout all generations, I shall not be in adversity. The evildoer's mouth is full of curses, deceit, oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate, the weak, the powerless. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. Arise, O Yahweh, O God, lift up your hand. Don't forget your afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it, but you have seen it. You have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate, the powerless, commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. Yahweh is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Yahweh, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed, that man who is of the earth may cause terror no more. Psalm 10 is one of two anonymous psalms in the first book. Remember, the psalms are divided up in Israel's scriptures into five books. Uh, the, first of, the first book has two anonymous psalms. This is one of them. Uh, many people connect this one with Psalm 9. This one, Psalm 10, is anonymous. But if, if you look even in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, Psalm 9 and 10 are one psalm. And there are various reasons for that, one of which is that together they form a kind of acrostic structure. Remember, uh, 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 across, um, the acrostic structure is a part of Hebrew poetry, and it's where you move through the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, uh, a certain number of sentences or, or um, uh, partitions following one letter after the other, Aleph, Baith, Gimel, Daleth, all the way down through. Psalm um, 119 is an acrostic poem, and it marches through the whole Hebrew alphabet, if you read it in Hebrew. Each sentence starts with a, a, a successive Hebrew, not each sentence, but each group of sentences starts with a successive Hebrew letter of their alphabet. And this Psalm 9 and 10 function together in that way also. It's kind of not so tightly ordered, but it does have a kind of acrostic structure. They also function, Psalm 9 and 10, chiastically, another big word, but chiasm is a relationship that you can think of it like a mirror image. If you look at something in a mirror, What's closest to the mirror, then it's like flipped over like a, a leaf. So if you thought of it kind of expressed numerically, it'd be like A, B, C, C prime, B prime, A prime. Not A, B, C, A prime, B prime, C prime, A, B, C, C, B, A, like a mirror image. And this functions that way, too, in that Psalm 9 is fundamentally a psalm of praise and thanksgiving, but it ends with an imprecatory note. Psalm 10 reverses that. It's a prayer of imprecation, but it ends on a note of praise and thanksgiving. So it reverses that order. And that's another structural relationship that I think is a part of connecting the two together. Well, why does it even matter? Well, because Psalm 9 is ascribed to David, and if Psalm 10 is the second half of Psalm 9, and a lot of scholars believe Psalm 10 was penned by David as well. Now, it doesn't really help us a whole lot because we don't really know what is the circumstance that the writer is speaking of. We say, okay, what specifically is he getting at? He talks about, where are you in times of distress? 
We don't know what exactly that is. And the scriptures don't care that we know what exactly that is because the principle holds no matter what. It doesn't matter what specifically are these times of distress. What matters is how the psalmist is relating to times of distress, particularly in relation to God and these who are afflicting him. So we don't exactly know. We only know that he defines these times of distress in terms of evil men, wicked men who are rising up to oppress and afflict, to use deception and manipulation, to take advantage and exploit and oppress and crush those that they can. That's the times of distress that he's referring to, a circumstance of oppression and abuse that the powerless are being subjected to. Well, the psalm is constructed in four basic sections. It starts out, as I said, as with an opening imprecation. It's a plea of lament. Why, O Yahweh? A plea of lament and then an imprecation tied to that. That's verses 1 and 2. Then he goes on in the next section to depict these evildoers and what they're doing and why it's justified for God to arise against them. He calls on God to arise against them and then he says, here's why this needs to happen. Then he returns and reissues his plea to God to arise and to deal with these evildoers, but in an amplified way flowing out of his depiction of these men. After he depicts what they're like and what they're doing, he again pleads with God to rise up against them, but in an amplified way. And then, as I said, he closes with this doxology, this praise to God. A statement of what he knows to be true, what he's holding fast to in the midst of this affliction and oppression. So he begins then by questioning, and this is not uncommon in the Psalms, and even you saw this with Jeremiah. Questioning, God, where are you in this? I don't get your disposition in this. Jeremiah, as he, as he, you know, with his poetic language, talks about God has even become his enemy. God has postured against him. God is resisting him. Well, I thought you set me apart. You said you would deliver me. You said you would be there for me. You said I would prevail. Where is that? And this has that same sense. Where are you, Lord? He's questioning what appears to him to be God's indifference to his people's affliction. Why do you stand far off when this is happening? And even more so, he says, why are you actively hiding yourself? It's not just that you're far off, like you're aloof or you're distracted or whatever. You've intentionally stepped back and hidden yourself in our time of need. Can't you see what's happening to us? Can't you see that it's with pride, with malice, that the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted? Can't you see what's happening? You need to arise and you need to visit on their own heads what they are seeking to subject us to. What these, in, what these people are imposing on those that they can subjugate, you need to bring that back on their own heads. Where are you, God? Why won't you deal with this? And then in 3 through 11, he begins, again, typical of the Psalms, he uses this kind of very powerful imagery. He depicts these men uh, in, in all of these various ways in which their oppression is taking place and the attitude behind it. And the fundamental issue is for the psalmist is their arrogance towards God himself. It's not just what they do, it's the attitude that they have in it. The hubris, the arrogance. So he has these bookends. You see this in the section 3 through 11. He begins and ends it. He bookends it 
in exactly the same way. Verses 3 and 4. The wicked boasts. He doesn't just do things while he's making excuses or pretending to be something else. He boasts of his heart's desire. I can afflict, I can oppress, I can do what I want, and I'm proud of it. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek the Lord. His thoughts are there is no God. And then verse 11, he says to himself, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. That inclusio, book ending that section that way, says that the, what, the, what the psalmist wants you to see is that the, the, what motivates them, what really is kind of the main thing behind what they're doing, is their attitude of arrogance towards God. They, the, the very fact that they can do what they do with impunity, nothing's happening to them, they know, these individuals know that these that they're oppressing are Israelites and they hear them crying out to their God and he's not doing anything. It's kind of what you see the, the indictment of the Assyrians in Isaiah 10. This is like snatching eggs out of a, out of a nest. Nobody resists us. Nobody's coming to your rescue. We can do this. We're never going to be moved. No one's going to rise up against us. We're absolutely triumphant in what we do. And that sense of unchallenged triumph over people who are crying out to their God told these men that that is not a God worth noting. Remember again in the ancient world, people associated a nation or a people's status and might with their gods. And so if a nation triumphed in war, it's because their gods were stronger than the gods of the people they rose up against. It was understood that a nation or a people group have their own gods who are devoted to them, who fight for them. And the fact that these nations could just plow through Israel and destroy it at will said that the God of Israel is nothing. Our gods are greater. And that's kind of behind this too. Their sense of unchallenged triumph told them that this God of Israel is not worth noting. He's either absent or he's uncaring, he's impotent or he doesn't even exist at all. He's done nothing. And so this description that he flows out here, he's describing them as men of great hubris, grandiose men. Men full of themselves, full of the sense of their own power, their own capacity to do what they want. They can abuse and they can exploit, they can beat down with no consequence. They have full power to secure all of their selfish ends, and they're proud of the fact that they can even do it through deceit and violence and oppression. They're not ashamed, they're proud. He paints this in the most extreme terms. God, why do you allow that? I thought you oppose the proud and you give mercy to the humble. Why would you allow that? Why would you let that go on? This sort of wagging their tongues and their hands and their hearts against you and against your people. It's not just that they come against other human beings. It's that they say, this God's nothing. There is no, he can't do anything. He doesn't care. They speak against you and you put up with it. I think we can all see how this is very practical to every generation. And this is not something that was unique to the psalmist's time. This is the way the world always is. So after building out this description of them in that way, again, he says, his ways prosper at all times. They prosper in what they do. They don't face the consequences. There's no downside. Everything they do, they prosper And whatever your sentiments are, God, they're out of their sight. They don't care, and you're not doing anything about it. 
He snorts at his adversaries. They're nothing. I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. Their mouths are full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Not cursing in the sense of bad language, but in the sense of pronouncing their own condemnation on those around us, around them. Under his tongue is mischief, wickedness. They, they sit, they conspire. They don't simply take advantage of opportunities that present themselves. They plan and they strategize opportunities to exploit, to subjugate, to oppress. They're looking for opportunities. They're planning and strategizing. They lurk to catch the afflicted, drawing them into their net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate, those who are subject to their evil power, fall by his mighty ones. And he says to himself, their God doesn't care. He's forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see. Then verse 12, again, the psalmist returns to his imprecation in an intensified way. Arise, O Yahweh. He calls him again by his covenant name. You are the God of Israel. You are the God who took this people to yourself. You are the one who elected them and set them apart to be your covenant children. Arise, Yahweh, the one who is the true God, and lift up your hand. Don't forget the afflicted. Why is the wicked able to spurn God? He says to himself, he'll never require it. He says, God, you have seen it. You're aware of it. You have beheld mischief and vexation. You need to take it into your hand. In other words, you, you, you see it, you perceive it, you know it, you need to deal with it. The weak, the unfortunate, commits himself to you. And you have been the helper of the orphan. The idea of the orphan is not just a person who doesn't have parents, but in the ancient world, an orphan was the most helpless of all people. The scripture even, you know, in the New Testament, but certainly in the Old, uses this phrase, widows and orphans, widows and orphans, because they were the two most helpless groups. A widow, if she wasn't remarried, would perish. There was no aid to families with dependent children. There was no welfare. There was no social safety net. If a woman found herself on her own, she didn't go get a job or go get a degree or whatever. She starved. If she didn't have family to help her or a husband to provide for her, she would die. It was a state of helplessness. And so the widows and the orphans are the powerless ones. And that's the idea here. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The psalmist is saying, these men, these evildoers, believe that you're distant, that you're unaware, that you're unconcerned. That you'll never call this wickedness and oppression to account. He says, but I know, O Yahweh, that you do see. I know that you see. You're not unaware and you're not unconcerned. You need to respond accordingly. And he rehearses, and again, it's not fleshed out in detail, but the psalmist is aware of God's relationship with Israel. He has been faithful. He's come to the aid of his people throughout their history. He rescued them in Egypt. He rescued them through the time of the judges. Even though their oppression came on them in the time of the judges through their own unfaithfulness, when they cried out to him and they repented, he sent a judge to deliver them. It was this cycle over and over and over again. And as soon as they were delivered, they started slipping away again. And then when it got really bad for them, they cried out and said, God, deliver us, God, deliver us. And he heard and he sent a deliverer. And then it started all over again. But the psalmist is aware of Israel's history. And this God who has been there for Israel all through its history, he knows remains the same. He remains the same. So he's calling on God to arise and to 
bring justice to this situation. But I want us to note that he's doing it from a, a, a particular perspective that is important. He's longing and calling upon God to do a work of purging all evil from the world. He called on Yahweh to seek out all of the wickedness in the evildoer. Plumb into the depths of the evildoer, the wicked one. Seek it out. Find all of the corruption, all the perversion. Find all of the wickedness and address it until there's no more to be found. And that has kind of a double sense to it. On the one hand, he's saying, don't allow them to get away with anything. Deal with this truly, thoroughly, comprehensively. Plumb out, seek out this unrighteousness, this wickedness, until there's no more to be found and deal with it. Let it all be exposed. Let it all be punished. But also that none should remain. That it is no more. Not just that it's punished and they don't get away with anything, but that there is no more. There is no more. Until you find none. And that can only result from either the destruction of the wicked, which ultimately means all mankind, or the purging of mankind. So the psalmist then brings this song to its climax with this doxology this exultant declaration of his own faith and hope in Yahweh, the God of Israel, the covenant God, the Lord, Yahweh is king forever and ever. Verse 16. Nations have perished from his land. O Yahweh, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed, that man who is of the earth may cause terror no more. He refers to Yahweh as the everlasting king. And obviously God was the king of Israel, right? Israel was a theocracy. God was king in Israel. But ultimately, the psalmist recognized that God's kingship, the design of it, the intent was it, that he is king over all creation. The everlasting Lord who rules over nations and peoples. And he here even points back again to Israel's history. God called Abraham when he was one and he made him a great nation. And he gave this nation the land of Israel. And in giving Israel that land, he drove out the nations, all the various Canaanite nation states that populated that land. Nations mightier, stronger, more militarized than Israel itself. God drove them out. And that's what he's saying. Nations have perished from his land. God is the God who raises up, he tears down. He lifts up nations, he tears down nations. He's the God of all men, of all men, of the whole earth, of all creation. He is the great king. And from Abraham, he made a nation that would ultimately be a nation that would be a family of many nations. Abram would become Avraham, father of many peoples, right? So he's drawing on this Israelite Language of God's power and his purpose and his own triumph in the history of Israel. He's the everlasting Lord. He had acted against wickedness and rebellion when he drove out those Canaanite nations. Remember, even in the commission, the the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, God made his covenant with Abraham to give him that land. But he said, it's not going to happen right away. You're going to be afflicted and oppressed by another people. 
And then eventually you will come out with many possessions. Then I will give you this land. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God's conquest of Canaan and giving of Canaan to the Israelite people had the secondary aspect of God's judgment on the ungodly Canaanites. It was his own rising up against these oppressors. In a certain sense, the psalmist is is pointing in kind of an, an allusion way to the fact that the men that he's depicting here, the circumstance he's dealing with in his own lifetime, very much parallels the way God dealt with the evildoers in Canaan. These nations that in their arrogance, in their pride, in their hostility to him, said there is no God, we will prevail. And God gave this little nation the land of Israel. He drove out those nations from before them. That's what he's pointing to. God, you have done this in the past. You have risen up in this way in the past. You've acted against wickedness, arrogance, hubris, rebellion in the past. And I have no doubt that you will continue to be faithful to that intent, to that mindset, to that attitude, to that orientation. God had heard the pleas of his people. He had arisen on their behalf and he would do it again. He had demonstrated over and over again that his heart was ever inclined towards his people Israel. And whenever they came back to him and implored him in humble, dependent, grateful faith, he arose on their behalf. So my point in that is to say that if we put this in its Israelite context, the psalmist's confidence, even as he pleads with God, his confidence isn't just you know, subjective, whimsical, arbitrary. He's not saying, God, if you're God, then you'll do this. If you're God, you'll do the right thing. I believe, I hope, I think. He's not speaking in that sort of whimsical, emotional sort of way. His confidence, his faith, even his pleading with God is grounded in Israel's history with God that he was well aware of. This God had shown himself faithful throughout the generations, and he remained the same. And here's the point. That same history that the psalmist was well aware of, that he was steeped in as an Israelite. And the goal of that history, God's history with Israel, informed his own longing and his imprecation. As he pled with God to arise and to deal with these evildoers, he was thinking about that and even pleading with God through the lens of Israel's own history and the purpose and the goal of God for the world in and through Israel. In other words, his burden and his plea to God looked beyond his own personal circumstances. It looked even beyond the injustice and oppression that he saw going on all around him. He pled with God to arise against wicked men and their evil plots and the the corruption and evil that fills the world in view of God's own pledge to purge the world of its corruption. A pledge and a purpose that were bound up in Israel itself. You've been faithful to your people to bring us to this point and your goal for this people is that through your people Israel, the descendants of Abraham, your blessing will go to all the families of the earth. This work of renewal, this work of purging, this work of dealing with the curse is in and through Israel. It's from that mindset as an Israelite, he says, God, arise and deal with this. In other words, it's not this narrow little thing. My boss is driving me crazy. Make him have a heart attack. My neighbor really gets on my nerves. Let a lightning bolt strike his house and burn it to the ground. See, we we struggle with this idea of imprecation because we think of it in terms of calling on God to be the hammer in the cause of our own agenda. 
But that's not what the psalmist is doing. That's not how imprecation works in the scriptures. It's really calling God to arise, to be jealous for his own intent, his own designs, to accomplishing the things that he has purposed, that he has sworn that he is going to do. So the psalmist knew in his heart, whatever he was seeing going on around him, he knew that God was not indifferent. He knew that God was at work. He knew that God would continue to work out his purposes in the world. He heard the cries of his people. He heard their affliction. It seemed to Jeremiah that God had abandoned him, that God had even become his enemy. But he knew that wasn't the case. It was hard for him to match up this election of God, setting him apart to be his mouthpiece to the nations, and now everything is going so badly for him. How does that fit together? But he believed that God was still honoring his purposes in and through Jeremiah. And so it is here. The psalmist is absolutely sure that God is going to come to their aid. But note also, importantly, what he says. He's going to come to their aid and deal with these enemies, not by delivering them from affliction, but by preparing and establishing their hearts. O Lord, you've heard the longings of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will strengthen their heart. To be able to withstand all this evil and injustice. How does he prepare and establish their hearts? By again turning their gaze back to what is true. To what God is doing. To where this is going. Turn their gaze away from what they're experiencing. What they're suffering. How badly it hurts. How much they're, you know, all of this pain and anguish and affliction is going on in them and around them. And again, turn their gaze back to the God who is faithful to his purposes and his promises. Establish their hearts that they would be able to endure. He was going to arise on behalf of the powerless and vindicate them in the sight of their enemies. He was going to do that. And the psalmist says, not only do you hear, and this is important in verse 17, he doesn't simply say you hear the cries of your people. He says you hear the longings of the humble. Not only are you not far away where you can't hear when people cry out to you, he says you hear the longings in their heart. You hear the groanings in their heart. You hear within them. This is again Romans 8, right? We don't know what to pray, but the spirit within us groans with groanings unutterable. Because the one who searches the heart knows what is the mind and the will of God. God hears the groanings. And the psalmist says, he will arise, he will arise. But he also recognized that that deliverance that he longed for, this ridding of evil in the world, awaits a day of judgment that God had ordained at the beginning. The day that is now come in Christ. The psalmist is looking to, again, the promise of God that one day all of this will be no more. See what he says in verse 18, to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed that man who is of the earth may cause terror no more. He doesn't say that man would be no more, that man causing terror would be no more. He knew that God had pledged a day when he would arise and he would do this work of purging, not by being the king who arises with the sword and destroys mankind, but the one who triumphs over man and his arrogance and his malevolence by making him man indeed. And that's a mystery hidden in the psalm, but we know that that's how God would accomplish this. How does he make it? How does God arise so that man of the earth may cause terror no more? By making him man as he intended him to be. 
Yahweh would take all the wickedness of mankind upon himself. The psalmist says, arise and deal with this, God. And he says, I will. And I will deal with it by taking it upon myself. Through incarnation and through crucifixion. And in that way, I will triumph over it and I will destroy it. And then I will bring forth a new mankind and a new Adam through resurrection. So that man who is of the earth, man who is earthly, Enosh, created man may cause terror no more. And in that way, then God would establish his kingship and his kingdom in the exhaustive way, fulfilling the psalmist idea, uh, doxology. The Lord is king forever and ever. The gospel of the kingdom that Jesus went around proclaiming was the good news that God is now becoming king in the way that he has always pledged. And how is he going to do that? Not in a way you think, not in the way you expect, not with an army, not with swords, but by taking all of this upon himself. Remember again, as Jesus hung on the cross, what was the placard over his head? This is the king of the Jews. And Jesus told his disciples, you say I am Lord and Master. Messiah means king of Israel. And yet you don't understand what that looks like. You have to rethink authority. You have to rethink power. You have to rethink kingship. The greatest among you is the least. And the servant is the master. Because... The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. My kingdom is not what you think. Authority, power, and lordship are not what you think. Let me wash your feet, Peter. No, you're the Messiah. You're the king. Kings don't wash people's feet. Unless you receive me in this way, you have no share in me. This is the king of the Jews. How would God establish his lordship, his kingship forever and ever so that man of the earth would bring terror no more by consuming it in himself? And in himself, in the resurrected son, ushering in a new humanity with the goal of a whole new creation. See, the psalmist doesn't get at all of this but he has, a, he has an understanding that God says, one day I will arise and I will put all things right. We look back and we can take this psalm and we can see it through the lens of what God's accomplished in Christ. And I want you to think about that even as we next time then consider this thing of, okay, what do we do with imprecation? What do we do with the imprecatory psalms? How do we pray these psalms? If these are at the heart of our worship, how do we pray them? How do we pray for God to deal with the adversary and the enemy? Well, with that, let's, let's close then for today. Father, these are truly marvelous things. And I know in my own heart, I, I feel like we only scratch the surface of the glory, the greatness, the mystery, the profound, all-encompassing nature of your work. Father, your mind, your purpose, your work are so vastly beyond what we can get our arms around. But we thank you that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ the truth of our God, the truth of his love, the truth of his power, the truth of his intent the truth of his triumph, the truth of the destiny that you have ordained, not just for the human race, but for all of creation. And Father, I pray that we would be a people who are truly fixated on him, who, as Paul said, want to learn Christ, who are devoted to learning him, not just learning about him, but learning him through the mediatorial work and the ministration of the Spirit, growing up in him.
being ministers of him to one another, laboring together, that we together in all things would grow up into Christ who is the head. That's the destiny you've appointed for us. Help us to be Christians indeed. To be consumed with Jesus our Lord in the way that Paul was, in the way that testifies of the truth that he is our life and he is our destiny. And indeed, he's the destiny of the whole of the creation. Father, may we never get over him. May we never get over the grandeur and glory of your work and your disclosure of yourself in him. May we be Christians indeed. That Christ would be glorified in his church and through the church in the world until all eternity. Amen.